Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, the 24th of September, 2023. Two days late. It's usually on a Friday. But today is That Was The Week with my friend Keith Tier. Uh, he's back on the venture class, on what he calls the venture asset class. He begins his newsletter this week suggesting that there are lots of talking points. He talks about uh, Scott Galloway, Rohit Krishnan, uh, Elad Gill, Bill Gurley. And then he says all those are interesting, but there's something more interesting, a piece by Hatcher founder Dan Hook Turp on venture returns versus private markets. Uh, so, Keith, why did uh, venture returns versus public markets, what the data says by uh, Hook Turp, which he published um, back in 2022, uh, why is this the feature of the week? I only just read it. So, I, I tend to use what I read this week. I don't know why I read it. It came to my attention. I went and read it. And um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing because the popular imagination says that venture capital is this amazing asset class that makes a lot of money compared to the money that goes in. And this, this guy is making the point that because venture capital uh, makes money from what's called the power law, it's almost impossible to capture that money. Um, uh, uh, you can't put it in a bottle and own it. Whereas in public markets, the the performance of the public markets is more normalized. So you can have things like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ index, and you can buy the index and you'll more or less get the performance of the underlying assets. But in venture, you can't do that. You have to, we've got this kind of artisanal industry where individuals who think they're good at picking companies one by one go kind of mining in the, in, in the coal mine that is venture capital and cherry pick companies and try to do as well as the market. So what I did in the editorial is I just stood back and said, well, let's understand what the market is. And I put some numbers in there about the venture capital market, what size it is. And if you could do in public markets what you do uh, uh, you know, if we could do that in uh, venture capital, I use Series Bs because that's my expertise. You would make about three hundred percent gain if you could buy every Series B over the last uh, eight years. You would make about three times your money in those in, in in five years after each investment. But you can't do it. Unlike the S and P five hundred, you can't buy the venture one thousand or whatever. Um, uh, so he got my attention because he showed how impossible it is to index private markets. Now, in my working life, guess what? I'm indexing private markets. So it was an affront to me to read something that says it's impossible. So I decided to lean in and, and examine it. And uh, I'm guessing that you came out of this, Keith, looking pretty good, you and your startup. Are you suggesting that uh, SignalRank offers the ability to more accurately quantify the returns of uh, VC versus public markets? 
It, it's more than quantifying. It's so if I tell you that in order to buy Series Bs uh, in the same way you buy the S and P five hundred, there are eleven to twelve thousand Series Bs in this eight year window that raised one hundred and twenty billion dollars only at the Series B. So let's say you wanted to own one percent of the entire Series B market, you'd need one point two billion. And you'd have to get into every single B round, which would be impossible. Whereas what I do with single rank is we score series Bs. And out of those 12,000, only 1,500 scored. Weirdly, even though that's only 13% of all the B rounds, it attracted over 40% of the, of the 120 billion. 50 billion of the 120 went to this 13% of companies which is kind of a good sign that there's something special about those companies. So you would need half a billion over eight years or 62 million a year if you wanted to buy those 1,500, 1% of, of, the, of the B round. So it's kind of doable. Um, and we know, we know the companies. And the performance compared to the market is roughly double in terms of um, multiple. You get about six times your money in the signal rank 1500. Uh, let's think it, that that's our equivalent of the S&P 500. The signal rank 1500, you'd, you'd get about six times your money in five years. The B round market as a whole, you get just under three times your money in five years. In the market as a whole, one in 10 become unicorns. In the signal rank 1500, it's three out of 10 become unicorns. So yeah, I think, I think what we're building is something that should result in the possibility of indexing private markets for so that public market investors can now buy private markets as well. That, that's the idea. It's a big idea and I think doable. Yeah. And uh, it touches also on a, it's not just signal rank. A lot of other companies are trying to reinvent this business. It also touches on the startup of the week that we'll come to later. Let's talk about the week of uh, September, uh, the, one of the, the, the last week of September 2023. You have an interesting piece from Galloway. You're always, uh, Scott Galloway, you haven't always been a friend of or a big admirer of Scott Galloway, but you seem to be falling in love with him, Keith. No, I actually disagree with what he wrote this week, but, it, but I, it's, it's, you know, there's, some, there's a bunch of really well-written essays this week, and his is one of them, and he focuses on the breakup of Google prefigured in the trial that's currently going on. And he weighs in on um, how, a bit like Bill Gurley in the video of the week, he's a bit of a skeptic on regulations benefits, but not as big a skeptic as Gurley. And he comes to the conclusion that the right thing with Google would be to break up YouTube and Google and force them into two separate things. Now, it's kind of interesting because Scott's a clever guy and breaking YouTube up from Google is not on the agenda of this law case. That isn't what, what they're talking about. They're talking about advertising and search monopolies. He does a good job, by the way, of documenting how powerful Google's ownership of its own Google.com search engine is. But that isn't illegal. It's, they, they own it. They can do whatever they want with it. Um, so, so it's a bit of a confusing piece at one level, but it he does engage with all the facts and all the details. So by reading it, you learn a lot about what's going on. 
It was an interesting piece. And moving on to uh, another really interesting piece uh, by Ronit uh, Krishnan on innovation. What does he say about innovation that's important? This subject is, of course, central to AI and what exactly AI will do in terms of innovation and whether it will create jobs. Um, yeah, it, uh, so one of our common C, it will be a recording. You'll be able to get it afterwards on uh, go to go to that was the week .substack.com and you can subscribe and you oh these are this is our audience our, our millions of audience Keith. we yeah. may there may be uh, scott galloway may be a, write a piece about having to break up that was the week yeah into an audio and video piece yeah well at least carmen thinks we're interesting so 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 gracias for that carmen um so yeah uh, uh, rohit is british uh, and he's a prolific writer, a little bit like some of other writers this week, Eli Gill and, and, and Scott Galloway and others. And this is a history of innovation looked at from the point of view of and long-term history. It goes all the way back to uh, billions of years. What are the catalysts for innovation? And he focuses a lot on technology. I, I just put maybe the first 10% of his essays in, in my newsletter. So you really got to go and read the whole thing. But it's the relationship between um, technical breakthroughs, uh, human um, uh, social systems, and innovation. Uh, and, and, and you know, I think he's got the right relationship between things. I, I, some of my friends accuse me of being a technological determinist. I'm not, but I do think technology is a requirement of innovation. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary. And um, once there is innovation, like, for example, uh, ChatGPT today, human beings now have the possibility of doing things they couldn't do before. And if they embrace it and run with it, it will transform human life. That's really what Rohit's piece is all about. Yeah, and uh, I wonder whether he makes reference to, we, we talked about this last week, Simon Johnson's new book with Darren Akamoglu, Power and Progress, Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, a couple of very distinguished uh, economists at MIT who argue that technological advancement doesn't always result in prosperity for everyone. It tends to lend itself to, pro and this comes back to Galloway's point about breaking up Google. You have a tiny class of enormously rich, wealthy people and everyone else. Um, so yeah. this Ray issue isn't going away. Ray Dalio was interviewed this week and made the same point that revolutions happen when success leads to disparity. Um, and, and he then went on to make the point that in capitalism, success always leads to disparity. And he was prefiguring um, the decline of the US relative to China, uh, but also the implosion within the US at the level of structures and, and social relations. Uh, it's super interesting. It was at the All In uh, Summit, which uh, much as I don't like to admit it, was actually very good. Um, and then you have uh, Elad Gill writing also. And he's another of your of the people you often quote in your newsletter on AI regulation. What does he say about whether or not we should regulate it? Well, he he's a pretty um, bottoms up Silicon Valley type of a person, so it won't surprise you to learn that he's very skeptical of regulation and he 
makes the point similar to Bill Gurley's point. He, he references Bill Gurley's uh, talk that's this week's video of the week um, at the beginning of his piece, he, that uh, regulation favors the incumbents. So if you look at the history of, for example, telecoms regulation in the US, it hasn't led to new telcos. It's led to the incumbents solidifying their position and indeed growing um, due to the fact that the regulators put a fence around them. They, they make some rules uh, inside that fence, but inside the fence, the incumbents are protected from dying. Yeah, I don't know if Galloway would agree with this. In Galloway's point in peace, he talks about the regulation in the 90s on Microsoft that resulted in newcomers. This is an age-old argument. Um, so he's he's against regulation? Yeah, well, he's against regulation as a solution to uh, dominant market position. And, and that, in a way, it's, that's just logical because when you, when you base yourselves in the valley, you know for sure that no incumbent can really survive the new. Uh, and, and Microsoft's primary problem was missing the internet. The U.S. government's actions were... Which wasn't an insignificant thing, Keith, to miss. Exactly. So, you know, the, the fact that they've reinvented themselves in the cloud is testament to reinvention, but it's got really nothing to do with regulation. Regulation didn't really damage them. Neither did it really help them. It what does Galloway good. say about whether or not Google will miss the AI bus? Uh, I don't think he really is definitive on that. There are other pieces this week suggesting Google will eclipse ChatGPT soon um, uh, with using its um, BARD AI system and the new um, combination of deep, deep mind with um, the large language model stuff. So mm. we'll, we'll see. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true, but we can. We'll hold our breath and see. Your your friend uh, Elon Musk is back in the news. You have an interesting piece by Adam Lashinsky, who's been on the Keenan show a few times. A critique of Walter Isaacson's new book on Elon Musk. Uh, Lashinsky says. The writer shows us the perils of access journalism. Have you read the book? It's got a lot of press. I have not read the book yet. And that's just because I read so much online that reading a book is, uh, that you'll hate me for saying this, given that Keenon is mainly a book conversation. But uh, I don't read books anymore. I read a lot, but rarely books. And I want to go and read it. But then I have to make a conscious choice to stop my life and go and read a book. So what is um what is he what is Lashinsky? What's his critique of the, the Musk book? Well Lashinsky is super clever. He works for the information now, and um he may he basically is making that point that you learn when you do sociology in university. You remember participant observation impacting the the narrative. Uh so if you embed yourself as a as a sociologist in a community, the community changes due to your presence. So he's making the point that this book is an inside Musk kind of a book where the author was influenced by the subject too much. Uh, and given the, uh, you know, the amount of time he got to spend with Musk, 
he became, he, you know, it's like the Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, it's the Patty Hearst Stockholm Syndrome. You spend too much time with your kidnappers, hijackers, yeah. and you take on their cause. But I, I don't buy that. I, th I think what, what's happened is the world, the world uh, as it is, Musk hatred is veiled politics. People really hate Musk due to their political opinions. And uh, Isaacson isn't really prepared to go there. He wants to judge Musk just as he is. Has so what does the book say that's interesting that we didn't already know, do you know? Uh, I haven't read it. So the uh, so what's Lachinsky's point? The, the review, what, what, what is Lachinsky no, saying? That... That yeah, Lachinsky as well says it's a very good book for revealing the details of how things happen with Musk. How, how come he, how did this guy get to be Tesla, SpaceX, Twitter, you know, uh, Solar, uh, you know, it's just one guy. How did that happen? And the really, and that's a really imp in, important and interesting question. Yeah, and I think therefore the book is well worth reading. And Musk is, you know, massively more complex as a character than the caricatures on both sides would would allow us to believe. So reading the book is going to get us inside that. And it doesn't seem as if anything he does people appreciate i mean the news this week that he was charging people he says he will the x will charge users a small monthly payment to use its service to me that's a, an excellent development i mean it's, it's something i've been calling for for years the end of anonymity if you force people to pay then the quality becomes better i'm guessing that the response has been mostly negative has it uh, firstly, I don't think there's been much of a response, but insofar as there has been a response, it's negative. It's, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's funny because that group of people who would be critical of this are the same people that want the New York Times to survive and would favor the subscription service the New York Times owns. So the idea of subscription-based media is you know a reasonable idea let's let's say and far preferable in my opinion to advertising for stuff I want to consume and and so for Twitter to do that it, it's it's not crazy I actually do think it would be a mistake from a business point of view because I think Twitter has this weird um, you know five percent of Twitterers tweet and ninety five percent read tweets. And the readers are not going to pay. But this, is, this touches on something you and I were talking about before we went live, about whether uh, people are willing to pay for other people's content on Substack. I mean, it, it isn't, isn't what he's doing is really... What he will do is transform X into another version of Substack. There'll be a, two tiers of users and maybe providers of content. Some will pay, some won't. Well, I, I, I think if he does that, he'll kill what is unique to Twitter or X. What is unique to it is this, he called it the village square, which is somewhat appropriate. It's this open playground for conversation, both, you know, interesting conversation, also extremely, you know, uh, uh, alienating conversation. It's just everything. And the world has never had that. It, it, it it's as profound as the printing press. It's a place where everybody can go and hear everything and report and respond to everything. 
So the minute you put a paywall in place, I think it changes what it is into a much smaller version. And somebody else, human, human need requires this, will put something more universal in place. So I, I'd be cautioning him not to be not to use the blunt instrument of money. Uh, actually, I think I think much as I support subscription-based efforts, I think in Twitter's case it may be a, an error of judgment. Well, you may be right. I have to admit, I rather admire him for doing that, even if it offends everybody else. Uh, your startup of the week is an interesting one. It touches on what we were talking earlier about. The VC market versus the public market. What Allocate is doing is your startup of the week, um, which opens top VC doors to wealth advisors, suggests that the VC and the public markets are beginning to collide or be the same. Is that fair? Well, I, I think that's probably getting ahead of ourselves. But I think there's a there, there's a lot of people who would like to see uh, average person's money being deployed into venture-backed companies. Um, Allocate's mechanism is to create a middleman where you can invest into the middleman's pool of money and the middleman Allocate will put it into um, venture funds that they consider worthy of the money. So wealth managers are a, are a big part of that title. Most money in the world is run by wealth managers who work for large banks or organizations. And typically, they're not allowed to invest in private assets. So uh, that, that's the problem I focus on as well as Allocate. We approach it differently. My, my approach is to build an index of good performing B rounds. His approach is to build a fund investor where you and me can give money through him into funds. And there's others as well. There's quite a few of these. So I do think that we're slowly, slowly moving to a world where private assets are investable by normal people. The SEC will try to stop it uh, the best they can. They've, they've allowed a little bit of it. Uh, but if it was to become more thoroughgoing, I think they would try to stop it. If it does become more thoroughgoing, I, I understand what it does to the private markets and to startups like Allocate and, and your startup, how could it affect the public markets, the traditional way in which most people invest their money and, and, and save for retirement? Well, it, 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 it has to become a publicly viable asset to do that. In, in other words, create, creating, um, creating a structure like Allocate uh, you're still dealing with accredited investors for the most part. Uh, that is to say a small minority of wealthy people. In order to change that, these private clusters of assets have to become publicly tradable. Uh, you can't do that in an ETF. An ETF is an exchange traded fund because ETFs rules say that the underlying assets have to be liquid. So private companies can't be part of them. So you end up having to think of more novel structures, uh, which is what I'm doing. And, it's uh, interesting. You talk about the, the public square of news, which Twitter was. Maybe it will be in the future, although you warn Musk that if he charges for users, then that will break up. I mean, the stock market is essentially a, a public square for investors, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And a public company is simply a company that's gone through the rules to validate that the public can trust its shares, um, not, not in an absolute sense, but above a, a, a line where it, it's, if you will, kosher. Um, and I think if private assets are to be publicly traded, a similar line will be put in place. Um, and and uh, that, that, that's the hard challenge because otherwise you will go back to the Wild West where you'll get medicine men on horse-driven carriages selling you know, el elixirs to uh, people that are looking for gain and will um, fail to deliver the gain. So yeah, I wonder in the future, in 20 or 25 years, just as now we are rather nostalgic for a, the public square of big media, top-down media, whether in 25 years we might be nostalgic for the, the public square of public investment. Yep. Uh, well, I, we shall see. The, you know, there was this, uh, I, I got offered stocks in um, Arm, Instacart, and... Clavio in the last week from uh, Charles Schwab, not Charles Schwab, actually, SoFi, two of them via SoFi and one via E-Trade. And so um, in order to get those stocks, I had to prove I'm accredited. That is to say that I have a net worth over a threshold. That, that kind of is the, the problem, which is that the rich can get richer because they have access to growth opportunities that normal people don't have. On the other hand, bad actors will try to take money from normal people unless there's rules. And that gets you back to regulation and frame the need for frameworks. Is it really, though, when it comes to these this stuff and rules, is it really regulation versus neoliberalism in the invest on the investment front? Or is it more complicated than that? I think both are false, false uh, messiahs. Um, Overregulation is always bad because free, you know, free individuals doing interesting things should be encouraged, at least for a long time, until there's obvious danger. And I, I also think that libertarianism doesn't work. I mean, we all need somebody to come and collect our garbage cans on a Thursday or a Wednesday, in my case, uh, and that requires collective organization, social structures, and rules. So both things are required. And the balance between the free individual and society, that, that's the stuff of human, human dialogue for hundreds of years, as we, you and I both know. Well, and we know we need, that was the week, not just for startup of the week, which is allocate, but for X of the week. And you have a particularly interesting X this week. I'm, not, I'm trying not to call them tweets, although people still think of them from someone called Andrew Gazdecki. Tell us about this X, Keith, why it's won the X of the week. I just thought it's uh, super funny because this is this this is, could be the graph of my emotions every time I do a startup, and it's super accurate. Um, before the startup, you're thinking, thinking, thinking. That's the early part of the curve. And then you launch in a massive wave of enthusiasm. And we have an image here for people just listening. It's an image of... Uh, before startup, initial enthusiasm, everything goes up, and then reality sets in, and, and you get to what the uh, the exa calls trough of sorrow. And the, yeah, the trough of sorrow is when it doesn't work the way you think it's going to work, and you think you're going to go out of business 
five or six or seven or eight times. Um, and in this case, you ultimately survive. You get a fit between your product and the market, and it all goes up uh, and to the right as value is, it, it, it comes about. I will say, uh, even though this is uh, uh, you know, symptomatic of real life in doing startups, that second half of the curve where it all goes up is, the, is a rare outcome. As the power law, which we've talked about, indicates, if 13% of the B rounds are getting more than 40% of the money, you know for sure that you know, 87% of the B rounds never get to that part of the chart. Um, so mostly people are living in the first half of the chart when uh, after a wave of initial enthusiasm, they get into the trough of sorrow. Yeah, and the, the X, the text of the X says, long story short, it ain't easy. Keep going. Is that right, Keith? You've done this many times and you yeah. spent more time in the trough, the trough of sorrow uh, <laughs> You're perhaps still there. Have you ever, I mean, getting to this scale where the hockey stick goes up and you get seriously rich and, and, and famous is, uh, is still uh, quite unlikely and unusual. I don't, yeah, although in, I will say I don't think being rich or famous is, you know, I was, I was invited to, um, by a law firm to speak to a gathering at TechCrush Disrupt this week. And there were maybe 300 people in the room and I was introduced as um, Mike Harrington's founding partner in TechCrunch. And afterwards, for two hours, I literally at, uh, was talking to one person, then another, then another, doing selfies. Being famous is is not all. It's um, you know, it, 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 it's a tough life when you're famous. Put it that way. Well, you are famous, Keith. So, you, are you saying you have a tough life? <laughs> nope, I have a charmed life, I think. <laughs>